chapter 7, 2 Corinthians, if you want to follow along. When we look at these letters, especially of Paul, uh, these are obviously written to churches, you know, hence the name of the, the book, the second letter to the church in Corinth. And it helps us, and we're going to hit this pretty hard today because Paul does, it helps us kind of understand a little better how we're supposed to live out the Christian life. Uh, the Gospels do that some, but most of that's how you become a Christian and, and what it means to follow Jesus. And you get that certainly in the letters. But uh, certainly here in chapter 7, it's what does it look like when we're a Christian? How, how are we supposed to uh, uh, see ourselves uh, before God and, and how are we supposed to act and treat other people? So that's what we're going to look at today. So we're going to hit the first nine verses here. And I've been doing this a lot in 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 2 Corinthians because I think it makes sense. You just grab a couple verses. We're going to look at 1 and 10 primarily because the rest of it has more to do with what's going on in Corinth. So we'll summarize that, but we'll really kind of hit these other two. So starting in verse 1, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without fear within but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort which, which he has comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I will rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a, a while. It is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. So we want to hit that first verse a little bit, because we probably just read past, I don't know if you do that, I know um, they have that Bible in a year, anybody doing that? Is it still going? Good job. Yeah, I tried that, and I was, February, I was like, well, I'm not doing that anymore. Um, some people could do that, some people can't. One of the problems I had with it is I read it, and I couldn't remember what I read. So I do a verse in a year now. Um, not quite, uh, not quite that bad, but, uh, but sometimes, you know, we read past this because it says, let us cleanse ourselves, which seems kind of odd when you think of the gospel, doesn't it? Let us cleanse ourselves. I, didn't th I thought that wasn't possible. Uh, bringing ourselves to holiness. So what is he getting at here? And I think there's the three things to think about here, but I think this will help us with in our Christian life. I, I do think we get this I guess just wrong to some extent, or at least incomplete. Uh, a Christian life should be a life of constant self-purifying, and that's what he's getting at here. We're going to look at what that means in a minute. Um, first of all, you know, obviously this is a second letter. Uh, look at these verses from 1 Corinthians, first letter, chapter 6. It said, Or do you not know that the unrighteousness will, will no one who is unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God? Now you think about that. We did the disciple lord's prayer with the kids and i didn't say kingdom i said family there for them but that's it you know isn't that what we pray for your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven um but look at this paul is telling these corinthian christians that no one who is unrighteous is going to inherit the kingdom of god 
Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that list is probably not exhaustive. Um, but the next line is really interesting, isn't it? And such were some of you. Such were some of you. If you've ever been in a Bible study, and we do this in sermons too, if you see a pronoun, I'm always going to probably ask you who that is. Who is you here? You know, what we do sometimes is we say, well, it's me. Well, you know, it's not you right now. <laughs> it may apply to you, but Paul didn't write the first letter to the church in Corinth 2,000 years ago to you. He wrote it to the church in Corinth 2,000 years ago. To believers, though. And this definitely applies to us. I'm not saying that. Find out who it's written to, and you can apply it. The, uh, but such were some of you. And look at that list. But you were washed. You didn't wash yourself. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit of our God. That's, that's how you become saved. That is the idea. It's the whole John 3, 3 thing. We'll look at those types of, how do we, we get regenerated by the Spirit, right? It's very clear. That's, but that's not what he's talking about here in 2 Corinthians. And they have this in the background. And I want you to look at these ends of the, all these words, you know, a lot of these are errs, you know. These, the, these, this word, I mean, you can see it in Greek really easy, but it's easy in English. These are people, this is what you're characterized as. This is who you are. This is what's important to you. That's the difference. Um, it doesn't mean that if you've done one of these, you're done. That's not the point. Uh, what do we do when we sin? What are we told in Romans, you know, approach the throne of grace with confidence. Why? Because of the cross. We can go and God will forgive us if we repent. So don't think, oh, I've done this. And No, that's not the point. You're not characterized by this anymore. Romans 6, it, you're no longer a slave to sin. You're a servant of Christ. That's what this is about. So as we look at this, you know, these Corinthian believers were lost. They were sinful, but they were changed by the Spirit. And that's what this, that's how you have to start this. That's in the background when we get to chapter 7 of the next letter. You look at it, the gift of the Holy Spirit, that's the end of that. You get the Spirit. Um, how that works, we'll probably be talking about until the second coming, and probably after. Uh, but it's infused into the, the, the very substance of our soul. We have an access that we, know we didn't previously have, and is shown to be real in our life and conduct. We see this in 1 John over and over again. 1 John 3.10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. This is kind of cool. So you want to know which one you are? <laughs> Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Fellow believer. Um, now, what if you didn't practice righteousness yesterday? Or you didn't show love for another believer yesterday? Does that mean you're now unsaved? No. Practicing righteousness, think about the old covenant. What did they mainly do in the temple? They prayed. Jesus said that. They did sacrifice. Why? Why do sacrifices? Why make that such a big part of the covenant? Because people kept sinning. Why, do we, why are we told in 1 John 1 to confess our sins? Because we keep sinning. It's not the idea that you, if you don't, that's part of practicing righteousness is realizing when you fall short that you still have an advocate in Christ. That's part of it. It's part of the whole system. But don't do this, you know, we said this at the Bible study too. It's like, what are the, I, I, I don't like this saying. I understand what people mean, that we fall short of the glory of God. But you people say, well, we're all sinners. 
And I'm like, that's not the goal, is it? You know, it's, it, it, that's, a, that's a reason, but it's not an excuse, folks. The idea that, uh, you know, the Bible never calls a believer a sinner. That, that term in the New Testament is, is somebody who, it's, the, it's another er. That's what you're characterized by. Do you want to go around and say, well, I'm, I'm just one of those people who's characterized by sin. I wouldn't do that. I know that's not what you mean when you say that. What's the goal? Well, the goal is to practice righteousness. That's it, you know. It's back to the old idea, if you feel guilty when you're sin, I think you're in a good spot. But what do you do with the guilt? Well, we'll get into that in just a minute. So Christians are, to, are cleansed to begin with. We are washed clean. When God looks at you, he, if you're a believer, he sees blameless. He sees Jesus. You're good. But you remember, you're not Jesus. And you're still going to fall short. But positionally, and that should help you, right? If you truly believe in the grace, you don't fall out of grace because you screw up. You just, the, the relationship maybe just needs to be helped along a little bit. And why wouldn't you want that to happen? You do that in the other relationships, don't you? Or do you just sin against somebody and say, I hope they deal with it? You know, no, it's too important, right? Well, it's more important even with God. So we're cleansed to begin with, but they still have to daily cleanse themselves. This is what we call sanctification in a theological way. Daily striving with the Spirit to be more like Christ. And it, and it is some work. I think it's, you have to do it. I hope it becomes joy, too. Ephesians 4, until we attain, you keep going on and doing this stuff, the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood or womanhood to the measure of the stat stature of the fullness of Christ. So that's your goal, to be Christ-like. You know, keep doing that. Keep trying to do it. With the children's sermon, am I doing things that make God proud? That's what he's talking about here, I think. So if we're left to the task of self-purifying by our own efforts alone, we will surely fail. If you kind of say, well, I got some Jesus, my salvation Jesus, I'm going to put him over here. And then, oh, I'm going to go over here and get this done by myself, pull myself up my bootstraps, which I really don't know how you do that. I think Wiley Coyote was able to do that in the cartoons. But, but you can't do that. You can't, you can't do that anymore. Than you, you, you have to have the spirit. That's the reason you have him is to help you live a life of righteousness and maybe to even make it fun in the process. Um, so we're going to fail on our own. But if we can believe that God gives the impulse after the initial purity, that it's not just, oh, he saves you, you you're positionally uh, blameless before God, and then he just kind of, he goes off to somebody else after that because you got what you need figured out. No, it's that indwelling, we call it, that access that we continue to use the Spirit to help us. And the vision's in the Word of what purity is. We, we're reading about it now a little bit. But we also have the power to do that by the power of the Spirit. And it should strengthen us in this process, right? That's the idea, you know? And if you're looking at it like, I wouldn't do this. If you're looking at it like, I'm failing, God must be just greatly disappointed. And then you start going down of self-deprecation. I don't think you're looking at it right. Um, I think if you look at it, look at God as a father, not as a judge. If you keep doing that, life will be a lot better as a Christian. Um, I mean, you think about it. I don't know. You can think about whatever you want, I guess. But the way I think about it, when you mess up, you sin, and, and you know you have, and you're repenting, it's like, it's almost like Jesus is saying, have I not died for you? Isn't that what that was all about? If you were already perfect, I would have not done that. <laughs> I mean, it kind of makes sense if you think it through. So it is a self-purify, not a task 
from a taskmaster, but a purpose from a father. I would look at that. Somebody should be writing this down. That's pretty good. <laughs> I don't know if that's in your outline, but I'm going to go back and write that one down. <laughs> the second part of this, the Christian life is not to be merely a continual getting rid of evil. That's what we kind of talked about. With, you know, It's like thou shalt not, thou shalt not. But also continually becoming good. There's a stark difference between the world's morality and the Christian ethics. You got that out there. We have all the, you know, the things that the world says is good, and, and, and some of them line up. But the world says, do good. But it fails because it lacks the attitude toward the person of Jesus. That's the problem. Jesus is going to say, good luck being good without me. Be good luck being good without my spirit. Because he's the very foundation of Christian morality. And he doesn't just set up the rules and then say, follow them. He sets up a way of life and says, let me help you follow it. You know, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me because I am gentle and lowly. He, we, we, get it, we get to do this together. And that's what we miss, right? I mean, sometimes it's hard sometimes. I mean, I mean, we all have our own minefields of temptation, right? Well, the Spirit's supposed to help, and the church is supposed to help us through those. That's why, you know, it's one of the things you were talking about next week, we'll try to do some more recruitment for life groups, these small groups that get together. I mean, it's cool, you know, you hear somebody, a lot of times I'm not the one that gets first call that somebody's going to the hospital or somebody's struggling. Who does? People in life groups. That's cool. That's the way it's supposed to work. I'm not, I don't know why I've been doing this for over 20 years, but I still don't, I haven't got that red phone yet. I think people think I walk in my office and then, you know, Gabriel shows up and then he gives me the number to God and I, you know, because it's a direct line. If the pastor prays for you, then God's really going to listen. Well, I think maybe he will, but anybody that does, he's going, I'm not trying to belittle my position, but that's great when you've got close people that you can rely on that they'll really lift you up uh, in prayer. And not only that, help you out when you need it. Um, so what, this, what does this mean? Well, he, Jesus changes this hard and impossible law into love. Isn't that cool? You do good things because you love God, not to just follow the rules. And if you do the love of God, then eventually the rules just fall into place. It's back to that mature thing for me, Feed. You know, grow up. We're supposed to start acting like we know him. Well, if you do that, then all this stuff will take care of itself. And you know when you do mess up, and, and you most likely will, that you still have a father, not a judge. And that's what we are. That's it's, you know, I think sometimes we underestimate the power of being a Christian, of what it really means to happen. It's not just signing something on the bottom line. It's not just going into water and coming back out. Certainly not just being a member of some civic organization. It's having access to the Father because of the Son through the power of the Spirit. It's, it's actually pretty cool stuff. So in Jesus, this vague, abstract thought of goodness, you know, you get, we'll get this pretty soon, right? Every Christmas movie, what does Santa say? Have you been good this year? And every kid, if they were honest, said, no way, Santa. <laughs> Especially if you go with Jesus. Remember, you know, that the rich young ruler comes, good teacher, good teacher. Why do you call me good? You know, Jesus grabs onto the weirdest word sometimes. No one is good but God alone. He's kind. I think he's kind of asking, "Do you know who I am?" You're right. I'm good. But why are you calling me good? Um, 
But we have this idea of goodness, and it's kind of weird um, because where is it grounded? Where does the world ground goodness? Society? So was it good to exterminate Jews in the? It was the law in the Third Reich. That's what happens eventually, maybe not quite that bad, but when you ground goodness in us. Because <laughs> we don't know what the heck we're doing <laughs> when it comes to goodness. But if it, this solidifies into a living person. That's the difference. And that person makes his appeal first to our hearts and bids love me, come to me, follow me, the general call everybody gets. And then opens before us the unstained light of his own character and appeals to us to be like him. So if God's our father, in kind of a weird way, I guess, Jesus is our brother, you know. You know, you gotta be careful in that metaphor a little bit, but, that, but I- isn't that what we're supposed to be? I mean, how mean of God to tell us, you need to be like Jesus, but we can't do it. Yeah, that's not very nice, God. that's a mean God, that's a smite button God, and that's not what this is all about. Uh, what's your goal? But then, I hope that's what happens, the repellent becomes attractive. And you get this in John 14, 15. We should know this one by now. If you love me, keep my commandments. It's such a good verse. And in context, it's so neat. Because the love of Jesus is different than the love of everything else. I've used this metaphor before, but I think it's a good one. If I said, hey, let's go out to lunch, and I want you to love me, so you're buying. (laughs) And I want your car, because if you love me, you got to keep my commandments. Does that work good in personal relationships? Um, but what's the big problem there? I'm not Jesus. I'm not Yahweh. The love of God is always shown in obedience. And if we can just get past the idea that obedience is just rote following of rules, and obedience means receiving from the God the purpose and way of life that he has created us to do, oh, just like that. Psalm 23, he leads me beside quiet waters. Isn't that cool, you know? Who does that? Are you going to the quiet waters? You just think, you know, I think I'll go to some quiet waters. No, he leads you there. Why? Because you're too stupid to do it on your own. Spiritually stupid. We don't don't understand that. And so I, I think that's the thing. If we can get past that, we can get past this idea that God is just a, you know, a, a judge to be pacified and think about, it really is kind of cool that he came and became flesh, which we really get to hit real hard when we get to uh, Christmas, which is always fun. So at the core, and I'll let you read the First John 5 when you get home. Uh, when you get done with that, just text me so I know you did it. See how many texts I get. <laughs> then I'll come next week and say, oh, I forgot to text you. I mean, I know you won't forget to read it. I mean, everybody will read it. Uh, So we think about, at the core, we are to become good, and then we can do good. That's the difference. Is Jesus changing your heart, your soul, your goal, your purpose, your life? Now you can do it. You can do good now. And what is good? That what pleases God. If it's not, it's not good. I don't care what society says. Um, Well, I care, but just not that much. So the Christian life of purifying and consecration is to be animated by hope and this reverence, what, what it says fear here, 
for followers of Christ, this is reverential awe. So you're doing it because, wow, this holy God likes me, dies for me, and that, that can animate my life. So, this is, uh, so that's what he's, this, this is what it means to cleanse ourselves. Because the purpose, you, you've got to think of that. You know, the, the, the purpose of all divine activity, you know, Jesus' death, his life, his resurrection, his ascension, as regards to us, is not merely to make us happy. Although being happy is nice, but to make us happy in order that we may be good. Uh, virtuous and pleasing. In Romans 8, for those whom he foreknew, he, almost, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's, you know, that's the idea, the Holy Spirit changing us to be more like Jesus in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. He's the first one. He's our example. He's the one we come. So what, this is the key, joyful confidence in our being a child of God. I mean, my goal for all of you and for myself is can I, can I follow Jesus in a confident way and not worry every five minutes whether he still likes me, even at my worst times? You know, that's really not about us. It's really more about him. Well, Jesus, thank you for dying on a cross, but it's just not sufficient for me right now. Don't say that. <laughs> it's sufficient. So the confidence is only warranted in the measure in which we are like our Father. That's what we're supposed to do. And we can always do that. You know, one of the things I told you that somebody told me, and so I do every night before I go to bed, is look at the fruits of the Spirit from Galatians 5 and say, how, how good am I doing? Boy, is that sobering. Because uh, there's nine of them. If there's like two, I could probably do them. But there's a lot uh, there. And there's probably more than that. So then our hope is grounded in his promises and his grace, which allows us to gaze on his holiness with a reverent awe and swell up with the desire to please him. That's what you want. Pray that every day. Lord, may, be, may my desire be what your desire is for me. That's a scary prayer because he might just give it to you. But you see that in Paul, don't you? You know, he kind of says, yeah, they're beating me up, but it doesn't really bother me that much because he's got what he needs. So... That's just verse 1. This is going to take a while, folks. No, I'm just kidding. The rest of it goes pretty quick. We're going to look at verse 10 in a minute. But. And then in verse 2 through 9, it's more about his interaction with, with these people. He's continuing to appeal to a full reconciliation in the church. He's kind of taking that verse 1 and saying, you need to start acting like you're following. He tells them he's proud of them, which is good. I think leaders should do that. He wants to comfort them and assure them that his, that his tough letter, 1 Corinthians, which he really takes them to task, was to benefit them. It's part of what love is. So let's move on to these last verses here. Verses 10 through 16. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You can see why we're going to hit that one for a while. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment? At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides your own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved too true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. 
I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you, which is kind of a cool thing to say to these schmucks after you read in 1 Corinthians. He has confidence because he knows their faith is real and they're showing it. And it's, again, verse 15, obedience. But verse 10 is, a, is central here because we've been saying this, this you know, guilt, grace, gratitude for a long time. And I think it's a good way, good, good way. If you haven't thought that through, if you're thinking about your own faith, how am I saved? What does it mean to live the Christian life? Or how can I tell somebody else my story? Those three will always help you. Here, let's do it right now. Somebody comes up to you. Where's anybody going to lunch after this? Where are you going? Everybody's going to eat at home? Subway. Okay, we'll go. Well, go to Subway. And somebody comes in there. And this doesn't happen very often, but let's say it does. You go out to Grace Church. So that means you follow Jesus. Why do you do that? What are you going to say? Uh. <laughs> Hopefully not that. Guilt, grace, gratitude. Oh, in my life, I finally realized that, you know, my, I was sinning against the holy God, and I was guilty. I felt it. I knew it. The Bible tells me that. A bunch of other people told me that. And so I looked at the gospel, and I saw Jesus dying on a cross offers me love, and I can accept that grace. So now I have that. And before Father, he sees me as blameless. And now I live a life of gratitude, trying to be obedient to him because I love him. Any other questions? What'd that take? 30 seconds? And all you have to do is guilt, grace, gratitude. Now you can do more, and I hope that you talk to him more, and it's not just a one off, like, check. <laughs> you know? They may like, because there may be a lot of responses, right? You could get the, or what are you talking about? You know? But that's, the, knowing your own reason why you believe is very helpful in trying to tell somebody else. Uh, and that's always been helpful here. But that's, central here. It's called grief in verse 10 here. Godly grief versus worldly grief. And he gives us, verse 10 pretty much sums it up. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So look at the difference. Salvation, death. That's the difference. Uh, so eternal life, eternal death. That's what Paul's getting at here. He emphasizes an essential truth of the gospel. True repentance is impossible without faith. And true faith cannot exist without repentance. You have to have this in here. You know, it was implied in, it's implied in the guilt, right? You don't have to use the R word if you don't want to. When I was talking to the guy in Subway, wouldn't it be really cool if you went to Subway and somebody asked you that question? That would be weird because in every story I give from the rest, hey, you know, we got to go because he said, you got to be careful of that stuff. Um, but it's, you obviously have to repent. I accepted the grace. That's repentance, uh, changing your life. It's impossible. So true, this is, he's talking about true and false sorrow for sin. Godly sorrow has reference to God, hence the name. Godly. Worldly sorrow does not. I mean, there are people that are sorry. I don't know if it, you know, we maybe have somebody in our midst that could tell us, but politicians only get sorry when they get caught. Everybody's that way, right? Do you, do you ever see somebody get up there and say, athlete, whatever? It's like, you know, I'm really sorry. I hurt you guys. And they're like, what are you talking about? Well, do, you know, I, and then they give a story of how they messed up. Nobody knows. You ever heard that before? Do they have a press conference where the guy tells you what he did wrong and then repents? What happens? It gets out. 
and then they do it. And maybe it's real. I'm not saying the repentance is wrong, but that's what we get caught. That's when we, well, when you're before a holy God, you're always going to get caught. So what's the grief going to do? You think about it. We talk about crime. Well, crime means the transgression against man's law, really, right? Which is, could be lining up with God's law. That's fine. But that's a crime, right? Doing something wrong means transgression against your own conscience. But sinning is a transgression against God's law. Now, they, now, the cool part is if all those line up for you. And you look at Psalm 51. This is a really interesting psalm. It's by David. So written around 1000 B.C. Um, and this was after his royal screw-up. Um, I was saying that in the Bible study. It might, I'm not 100% sure of this, so I'll, I'll, I'll clarify, or I'll you know, put, a little, put a little hedge there. I think this is where this term comes from. You've heard that, you know, oh, I screwed that up royally. You know what happened before Psalm 51? David didn't go to war. David was on the top of the palace, and a young lady named Bathsheba took a bath. He saw said Bathsheba, and you, you can read the rest of the story. And lots of things. He committed adultery and murder in one week. Well, at least second-degree murder. Sends Uriah the Hittite, who's married to Bathsheba, who he just had adultery with, into the front line so he will get killed. You can call that what you want, I guess. And then he writes Psalm 51. Now, d would you say that he sinned against Uriah? You think he sinned against Bathsheba? Probably sinned against his people, too. But look at this verse. Against you, you only have I sinned. He's talking to Yahweh. Is he lying? I think he's dealing with the main thing. I've got to get this relationship reconciled. Hopefully he tried, and he did try to do the other one. And the consequences aren't going to go away. We've talked about when we went to forgiveness series. I've done what is evil in your sight. This is the sin. He understands he sinned. This is not just a crime against the laws. It's not just a crime against my conscience. It's a crime against you. You know, and he wants them, he wants God to know that so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And then if you read the rest of Psalm 51, which I hope you do, although you don't need to text me if you don't want to. He asked for grace, mercy. It's just a really cool song because his focus, even though, because you remember what David's called? A man after God's own heart. He's such a good character because he screws up really bad. But yet, yeah, this is rhetorical. I guess you could yell out your answer if you want. You think David's with Jesus right now? Is he in heaven? I think he is. Because he did everything right. No. No, because he accepted God's grace and then he desired to do everything right. But even then he, he did. Look at David. Did he, did he get it all right? No, he messed up. But what did he do when he messed up? He asked God to forgive him. That's practicing righteousness. That's pretty cool. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll hit this quickly, but blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We kind of miss this up, we, we, and we're going to go through the sermon. I think that's our next sermon series. So I've sketched it out. I think I can do it in 20 weeks. We'll see. Uh, the, uh, we'll probably have a Christmas break in there, so that'll be kind of fun. But, uh, but I don't think these are just 
one than the other because you, 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 know, you got the poor in spirit over here and then you got the mourners over here and, and we take this and, and it may have some help there. But this is the Christian life. We're just looking at these two. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I know I'm guilty because now yours can be the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn. Mourn what? Mourn the things that made me poor in spirit. <laughs> you mourn your sin. I think that's what he's talking about. And then you eventually you can be peacemakers and, and you can see God and all those things, but you've got to start here. Uh, we'll hit that a little harder when we actually do the sermon series. But. So everyone experiences godly sorrow in their own way, right? But this is the key, I think. The question isn't, am I sorry enough? Go home and it's like, you know, pastor said I should be sorry for treating that person poorly. I really am not that sorry. So I need to feel more sorry. So you can do like, you can cut yourself maybe, I don't know. Don't do that. <laughs> you can text me. if you. <laughs> I don't know why that keeps coming up. But uh, are y- it's not, am I sorry enough, but has my sorrow for sin caused me to look at Christ? What does your grief for your sin, where does it point you? If it's not pointing you to Jesus, you don't understand the gospel. The next stage is a godly grief produces repentance. You know you're guilty, what are you going to do with it? A person can mourn their sin and not really repent, right? We've seen it all the time. I can, anybody, you know, you're sorry that you may, you know, but are you repenting of it? And it's good that if you try to reconcile the person that you sinned against, but it's actually a bit better if you try to reconcile with God, too. Uh, repentance, this is our working definition. We're just going to read it. You can take it from there. An inward change of mind and soul away from sin and toward Jesus Christ. That's the main thing, right? That truly mourns sin and pleads for Jesus to deliver the soul from its burden and judgment. It, we did write this down, so we don't have to worry about that. This is, that's a good definition, I think. It's a, our working definition right now. And what does true repentance do? Well, Hebrews 12 is cool. It kind of. Therefore, we have the hall of faith in chapter 11, all these Old Testament people and that were very faithful. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is a good verse, isn't it? This is good stuff. This sums up what we're talking about. And think about that. What are we supposed to do? Sit in a chair and hang out? Is that the metaphor? Run the race with endurance. This is what, this is, this is what verse 1 is talking about. Let's do this. You know, you don't need the armor of God if you're going to sit in your easy chair the whole time. Very few arrows come when you're sleeping. It's when you're, you know, you got to come and be ready. And this is what this has helped. So the final stage, salvation is the issue of repentance. If you're repenting, it's got to be, it's about salvation at first. It's essential to true faith, but repentance is not salvation, right? It remi- who are you repenting to and what are you repenting of? And what's your solution? It's repent and what, Jesus says. Repent and believe. Repenting alone is not enough. So the faith must also exhibit an active, ongoing trust in Christ. That is the whole book of First John. We've been going through that on Saturday morning. It pretty much is sum up First John. If you're a Christian, it should darn well look like it by how you live. 
And if it doesn't look like it by how you live, even you're a really bad Christian, you're not one. That's, that's just Gospel John. Um, and then he ends up in chapter 5 and says, if you really do that this way, it's actually going to feel good too. So we trust in the grace that Christ offers through his death. You know, so the confession that we make daily, the communion that we have with him daily, being obedient and loving him. So this is the idea of repentance. Repentance is supposed to bring you salvation and then in a life of gratitude where you get to have that ongoing relationship. And that's going to continue in the new heaven and the new earth. That's, that's what's really cool. Uh, we have some really good Bible studies, and once in a while we have an adequate sermon, but they're really going to be good in the new heaven and new earth. You think we'll quit worshiping? Not if Revelation is telling us. That's all those people are doing. They honestly seem like they're happy about it. Maybe we put that on there too. If you're coming to worship and you're not having some fun, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> you can write that down if you want. And then this, these last verses that kind of sum up. He's confident in the local church. That's what we have to remember. It's good to be connected. We are as an E-Free church connected to other E-Free churches. Um, that's great. We have the same statement of faith. We should do that. But our, the thing I've always liked about the Evangelical Free Church, it's you guys that everybody's focused on, the local church. I just had uh, lunch last week with our uh, new central district, which is Iowa, parts of South Dakota, Arkansas, and Missouri. Um, new guy just came in, Kel Swan had been there for years, and his first question was, how can we at the central district office help your local church? And he's, I gave him some things that we, and he's, I've already got an email of how we can start doing some of that. So that's what it's about. And that's what Paul's doing here. He is confident. And he said that. Says, I rejoice because I have complete confidence you in Corinth to be the body of Christ in that city. And I think he has complete confidence in us if we keep on the gospel, try to be good disciples of, of making a difference in Denison and the surrounding area. We, yeah, it's good to have other things and, and help from out, but we can do this. You know, we'd be separatists, but we want to, we've got the power to do it. You've got the gifts. We can do this. We're already doing quite a bit. And I don't think it's necessarily about doing more. It's maybe just doing what we do better and more, more deeply and get more people involved. And kind of back to the welcome. What are you passionate about? Let's see if we can get some ministry going for that. So godly grief produces in them a desire to be forgiven, reconciled, and obedient. And isn't it cool that when obedience can become something that you really really like to do and have joy in. Let us pray. Father, I just pray that for everyone here. They, they all have gifts. They all have talents. Many using them already in so many ways, many ways that I probably don't even know. But you brought them here. Let's find ways to be obedient to you with joy, finding ways to m be good disciples, reach more people for your son, and hopefully have fun in the process. Amen.